0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, good morning, everybody. Let's find our way back to our seats there. Really, just Mike Potter is the only one I was talking to just now. Just Mike. You're the last one standing up, I'm just saying. You're going to get called out. <laughs> How are you guys? All right, love to hear that. Man, second service on Daylight Savings is always more back than the first. Man, that was an early morning. Um, Hey, before we get started, I'm going to ask you guys to do something uh, because it's really worth the 30 seconds. Uh, Something happens when you go from being a spectator to actually being in the game, okay? Uh, And so what I want to ask you guys to do is to spend about 30 seconds uh, engaging the Lord on your own in prayer and saying, God, would you speak to me? Would you show up in this place, and I'm telling you, something happens when you go from being like, okay, you know, Sam, teach the gospel to me, to Lord, I want to hear from you. Um, So engage him right now, pray to him right now that he would speak, and then I'll pray and we'll get started. Sound good? All right, go to work. God, by nature, our thoughts are not your thoughts. By, by nature, God, our thinking is not aligned to your thinking. God, we need you to come into this room by the Holy Spirit and to reframe our mindset, to wash us with the word, to change the way that we think so that we can have peace and joy knowing the truth. Father, would you work through the word in a way this morning that would truly transform our hearts, God. We are desperate for you to show up this morning. So God, please, we beg of you, come into your church, not the building, but the people, the living stones that are here, and show off your glory through the word and even through the foolishness of preaching, God. Would you be glorified in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, everybody turn to your neighbor and say, think bigger. Oh, that was so terrible. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Let's try that again. Turn to your neighbor and say, think bigger. Now turn to your other neighbor and say, seek bigger. Perfect. So yesterday, uh, good job. You guys, great great job. So yesterday, uh, I was... Um, given the the responsibility, not the responsibility, the privilege of watching my kids uh, for about three hours while my wife went and um, led a baby shower for her sister. Okay, so, but not only was it my kids. Now, I have have a three-year-old girl. Um, She's the cutest girl in the church. If you've seen her, you'll know. Um, Sorry, it's just true. Uh, And then, (laughs) uh, and then I, she is really cute. And then I have a one-year-old son, Justice, who's just, he's amazing. He's just this all boy, you know? Uh, and then, so I had my two, but then I was also responsible for uh, my wife's um, cousin's little kid uh, who's four, Colton, and he's, he's wild, you know, he's just crazy. he got a lot of energy. And so I'm responsible for three kids, just me. And so I'm watching them at the park, okay? So we're going to hang out at the park for three hours uh, while this happens. And I'm like, okay, man, how am I going to do this? Three hours is a long time at the park, okay? I uh, don't have a minivan, so I can't drive them anywhere just like there okay um anyways so my plan is we're at hawthorne park is like here's what i'm going to do we're going to play on the playground for about an hour hour and 10 minutes and the kids are going to start getting hungry so we're going to walk over the cross the street to to red robin we're going to get some french fries we're going to hang out color on the things you know and then we're going to come back play at the park some more and it'll be a cinch no problem (laughs) yeah he goes why are you laughing Why? (laughs) you have no confidence in me oh man uh, anyway, so so we're there, we're we're doing our thing, uh, we, we play for a while, um, and, and, and so like it's time to go to Red Robin, okay? So so you know I, I get the kids, we 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 go across the street. It's not too busy, so not really a big deal, whatever. Uh, we we go into Red Robin, we get some fries, and on the way out they have these balloons, okay? Turns out if you get there early enough, there's balloons for the kids. I didn't know. So. Each kid gets a balloon, says red balloon, it's on a stick, and they're all like just so happy, you know, shaking their balloon around, and, and so we're walking out to Biddle. Now, it's about 12 o'clock now, and it's a little busier, because we're cars, and Biddle's kind of a busy road. People don't really pay attention when they come around that corner. I mean, they're just going under the underpass, they're just flying a million miles an hour, so I'm like, okay, I gotta get these kids across the overpass, or across the, 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 the road without losing one, Okay. Don't want, to, don't want to lose one or two. So uh, I switch into protective dad mode, okay? I'm, like, staring at the cars, like, don't even think about running us over. I will kill you. Don't, yep, hit your brakes, you know? And I grab my son's hand, who's one, and I grab my daughter's hand, who's three, and then Colton has my daughter's hand. Only going to happen until they're about four or five, and they're not allowed to hold hands. Um, so they're holding hands, and I'm like, okay, guys, everyone stick close. No straying, no kicking rocks, no shiny things or anything. We're getting across this road, and we're waiting for the little blue man to come up, or whatever. Little blue man comes up. we got 20 seconds to cross. I'm like, let's go. And I pull in, and, and halfway along the way, justice just starts melting down. Like, it's like the world has ended for him, and he's crying. He's flimping on the ground i'm like literally dragging like come on what's going on and i i get across the street i'm like what is wrong with you and i look back and the balloon he was dragging it on the ground like you do when you're one and it popped and he dropped the stick and and little do i know this whole time this is happening back here and he's just his world is shaking you know like his whole world has just come to an end essentially now he survived, okay? We'll get him counseling when he gets older. Um, <laughs> Pastor Jeremy, if he's, still, if he's still at Heritage, we're going we're gonna to need you in about 20 years. Um, probably more than that. Uh, anyways, so what happened there? We, we get across the street, and, and, and the reality is, is that my son's scope is very small, okay? He's one. In his world, his balloon popping is like Russia dropping atomic bombs on the United States of America, right? I mean, he is like full-on panic mode. The world is coming to an end because his scope, his perspective is very small. Now, me... Being the wise 27-year-old father that I am, my perspective is bigger than his, and I know that, son, we got across the road, the cars didn't run us over, praise the Lord, everything's fine, we had french fries, life goes on. Bigger perspective, he's the one freaking out I'm not. The reality is, we live a lot of our lives in moments kind of like my son with his balloon. Moments where little things happen, little things come, um, but to us, they feel huge. They feel massive. Get in a fight with your spouse or your kid does something that you you, you were surprised by or you have a health scare come up or, uh, God forbid, someone cuts you off in traffic or maybe your boss says something to you that wasn't very kind and your whole world in that moment is shaken. And you just freak out, and you get anxious, and you call your, your, your husband or your wife, and you vent, and the whole world is terrible, and everything's horrible, right? Why does that happen? Because your scope is too small. Your perspective is too small. You're seeing the, that thing in light of a very small view. And God's heart for us is that we would see bigger, that we would think bigger, that we would seek bigger. Jesus says this in, in, in Matthew, uh, specifically Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. Let's throw it up here. Here's what Jesus says. He says, therefore, do not be anxious. Okay, pause there. He, therefore, when your balloon pops, don't freak out. Okay, therefore, when someone cuts you off in traffic, your day doesn't go the way you want, you get a bill in the mail you didn't budget for, It don't freak out. Don't be anxious. Hold on. So, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all those things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But, instead of, seek first the kingdom of God. What he's saying here is he's saying, don't think about things through the scope of the Gentiles, where everything is really all about now, and all about how it affects me now. Think bigger. Think kingdom. Kingdom, think. Okay? Seek bigger. That's what he's saying there. Now, salvation, when you get saved, you guys know this, if you've been saved in this room, you know that the act of salvation is this moment in time where all of a sudden you were blind, but now you see. All of a sudden, uh, things start to make sense when you get saved. Like, oh my goodness, it's all about Jesus. He loves me. And it transforms your life. This moment where, where your eyes are open. So salvation is having your eyes opened. But sanctification, which is the process that we're all in right now. Everybody say, sanctification. That's where you're at now. Okay? Salvation is when you got saved. Right now we're being sanctified. Salvation is having your eyes open. Sanctification is having your eyes widened. It's having your perspective opened up. And it's a process. It's a process that takes a lot of time. Let's go to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Paul says this. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? Minds. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, think like God. Think like Jesus. Get your perspective opened up. But it doesn't happen naturally. It's a process. It's God constantly, time and time again, conforming your mindset to his so that we can think bigger. Now, here's the question I want to answer. Uh, not me. Here's the question the text, hopefully, is going to answer for us this morning. How do I think bigger? How do I broaden my scope? How do I think wider. So if you guys have your Bibles, Colossians, we're going to be in chapter 3. Let's get them open uh, verse 1 through 4, and we're going to do some work in this passage. So if you guys are ready, I want to really get to the end of this, and hopefully you guys will be able to walk away coming back to that passage. Know it. Understand it. Understand what is really here, because there's a ton packed into these four verses. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. Let's take a look at it. Here's what Paul says. Now, first thing I want to say about this text is that Paul is calling the Colossians and you and I, he's calling us up to something. He's calling us up to something. Next slide. He he specifically says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. And then, verse 2, he commands, Set Your minds. These are commands. Set your minds on things above. Seek the things that are above. He's saying, I want you to respond to the truth that I'm saying in this way. Seek them. Set your mind. So it's a think and it's an action. Thinking and action. I want that to change based off of what is said. Next slide. He says in the text, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things. And then verse three, For you have died. Now, what is he doing here? He's saying in our text, that what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm going to ask you to do because this is true. Okay? Because this is true, do this. Not just, hey, do this. Because I said so. God, we do that as parents. God doesn't do that, right? He, he says, no, this is true. Because this is true, do this. That's what Paul is saying. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. For you have died and your life is hidden. So the question is, at this point, is what is he saying should change the way that we think now just just a quick example for, for this about how uh, the truth should change our actions if, if if you guys walk out of here after this teaching and someone is at the door handing every one of you a slip of paper and that slip of paper says on it that um, into your account has been deposited 100 million dollars okay it's uh, not gonna happen uh, sorry <laughs> if that happened um, that truth that you just discovered you just came face to face with would affect what you did from that point forward, wouldn't it? It would change the trajectory of your life. You would live in a different way if you knew that that was true. Whereas if you just walked out of here like normal, you might be like, okay, we're going home and having leftovers for lunch. Um, But now that we got this million dollars in our account, we're going out to lunch, right? Something would change. It would affect you. And what Paul is saying is because this is true, this should affect your change. Seek these things because they're true. Think this way because it's true. So let's take a look at what he says. Now, the way I want to attack this is that what Paul is about to do in these four verses, he's about to give us three dimensions to the complexity of salvation. Okay, salvation is when we are saved, right? When God gets a hold of us and saves us. He wants to give us three dimensions to the fullness of salvation because he doesn't want us to have a bulimic view of salvation. He doesn't want us to have a bulimic view or an anorexic view uh, of salvation. He wants us to have a robust view. Of how God saves. But not only how he saves, how he has saved and how he will save. So we're going to look at the past, present, and future working of God in salvation for you and I. And my hope is that by the end of what he shows us, we would say, wow, I need to change based off of that reality. So let's start with the past view of salvation. He points out to us in the text, if then... You have been raised with Christ, okay? Past tense. And then in verse three he says, For you have died. You notice how he's using past language there. He said, This is the work of salvation that has been done for you in the past, okay? First dimension. Past work of salvation. Now, my question for this, the first time I read this text uh, a week ago when I found out I was teaching, I, I opened it up and I read it first time, and I thought, Paul, what are you talking about? How how have I been raised? With Christ. That doesn't make any sense. I haven't died yet. And then he gets on and he says, For you've died. I'm like, What do you mean? I haven't died? I'm not dead. How is he he saying that you have died and that you have been raised? That's the question. What is he talking about here? Well, the answer is that Paul isn't talking about something physical, he's talking about something spiritual. He's talking about a spiritual death and a spiritual life that has taken place in the believer. Um, go with me real quick to Colossians, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter six, verse six. Paul says this. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. I know I said go with me. I know I didn't give you time to open your Bibles and get to that. I, I meant go with me on the screen. Okay. Uh, we're on a time crunch. Okay. Rome, Romans six, six. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So same concept here. What Paul is saying both in our text and in Romans is that you, O oh believer, have died. Not physically, not yet. You have died to something. And what you have died to is your old man. Not your father, not your old man, your old self. Your old being, the person that you used to be, has been put to death. That's why we do baptism, right? It's a picture. It's a symbol that when you are baptized, your old self is put to death. And you become a new creation. And like Jesus told Nicodemus, that you must be born again. It's a spiritual rebirth. It's a spiritual death. Take a look at Colossians 2.12. We just studied this a couple of weeks ago. Paul says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you also raised with him I'm sorry in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh God made alive together with him are you getting the picture here so Paul is saying the first dimension of salvation is that God has put to death your old person and he has given you new life spiritually on the innermost part of who you are, through faith is what he's saying. Now, the question is, and by the way, very important note about biblical interpretation. Okay, when you open your Bible and you read a text like we're looking at uh, today, Colossians 3, 1, 2, 4, don't ever ask the question, hmm, what does this mean to me? Okay, that sounds like a great question to ask. It's not a good question to ask. Don't ask, what does this mean to me? It's not really important what that means to you. What is important is what it means. Once you figure out what it means, then ask the question, okay, if this is true and I believe it, how should this affect my life? Okay? So let's ask that question. If this is true that we have been put to death, spiritually, to our old man and reborn, then what does that mean to us. How should that affect our life if, if, if we believe that? Well, I'll say this. Knowing who you are starts with knowing who you aren't. The reason that Paul is pointing back to this is because he wants you to understand that in order to know who you now are in Christ, you have to remember that your old self has been put to death when I was in high school, my entire identity and life and time and money and everything was wrapped up into this band that I was in, this metal band. Yeah, I was like a screamo. I had long hair. It was a dark time in my life. Um, but I was the drummer, and that was like my identity. Everything in my life was, was really put in that identity. And so all my time went into that. All my thoughts went into that. All my friendships were centered around that. Everything I spent was for that, because that was who I was. Now, it wasn't until I reached a point where I finally could admit to myself that that was not my identity, that I could finally start walking in who God wanted me to be. Finding your identity starts with knowing who you're not. Stop being someone that you've decided for yourself you're going to be. Who's God said that you're going to be? What does God define your identity as? Knowing who you aren't frees you from stresses that you were not supposed to carry. You see, Like Jesus said when he was talking earlier about seeking first the kingdom, he said the Gentiles are the ones, the worldly people are the ones that seek all of these things in life now, all these tiny perspective things. He says you're not to think that way. You're to think bigger, right? He tells us that. Now, when you're stressing about the things of the world, and we all do it, to different degrees, when you're stressing about things of the world, when you're allowing the things of this world to shape your day and your month and your week and your life and your marriage and everything, when you're allowing the cares of this world to to shape you, you are allowing an identity to define you that is not yours anymore. You've died to that. It's not for you to worry about the physical things. It's not for you to stress about your life now. God says, give that over. That's not who you are anymore. You are created for eternal things. I'll tell you, I'll give you an example of what this would be like as far as stressing about worldly things. Uh, Twelve years ago, I worked in a wood shop, a manufacturing business with my dad. And uh, it was a great job. You know, I worked there for a while. Now, what, that was literally 12 It's been 12 years since I worked there. So what if I'm laying in bed at night tonight and I wake up at 3 in the morning stressing out? Oh, man, did I lock? Is the door locked to the shop? Is the door locked? Did I turn off the compressors? oh no, like, what What if I didn't lower the heater? Like, what, what, what if I was stressing about that? I haven't had that job for 12 years. That's not who I am anymore. That's not what I do. Why am I stressing about that? When we worry about the things of this world to an unhealthy degree, we are basically saying, I'm choosing to live in an identity that God has put to death. It's not me anymore. It's not who I am. I don't need to stress about what's going to happen physically. I need to focus on what's going to happen eternally. That's who I am. It's my new Identity. And let me ask you guys, how many people, when they hit the age of 50 years old, realize that they never knew who they were in the first place? It's like called an identity crisis, midlife crisis. You hit a point where you realize, I, I don't know who I am. Okay, well, we know who we are. We were saved into an identity. We were saved into an identity. So moving on here now, we've been saved. We've been saved But Paul goes on to also say that we are being saved. So not only have we been saved, but we are also still still being saved right now. Take a look at the text again. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ, what? That That was really bad. Where Christ? Okay, good job. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died in your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the present tense of salvation. Not only have you been saved, but you are being saved. Do you guys know that? This is not not just like salvation wasn't just like, hey, I prayed the prayer, I got saved, and now I'm just kind of waiting around for the rapture. Come on, Jesus. I want to go to eternal bliss. No, you are being saved. Now, sin has been paid for. You are atoned for completely. But you are still being saved. Take a look at Ephesians 1.13. Here's why this matters. Ephesians 1.13 tells us why this matters. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Okay, this is, this is where the present working of salvation comes. God is holding on to you. When I'm walking across the street with my son yesterday, um, he, is, he is ready to just crumble in the middle of the road. But I am dragging him. Okay. John MacArthur says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. I would. The reality is, is that God is holding me. He is carrying me. He is sometimes dragging me by his grace and his love to the finish line because it's for his glory that I am saved, not for mine. You are sealed, church. Now, I want to talk about that word sealed. There's a story in the book of Daniel where Daniel, uh, who is this Jewish boy carried into a pagan land, living under King Darius, this uh, Nebuchadnezzar, this Persian king, and essentially Daniel got, got promoted to this really high position, and he upset some of the other rulers. They were upset about his position, so they went to King Darius behind his back and they said, Hey, this guy Daniel, this Jewish guy, he, he prays. Um, no, let me back up. <laughs> I did that in first service too. Uh, let me back up. He, he does, they don't do that. They go to Darius and they say, Hey, you should decree that no one can worship anyone but you. That's what they do. So Daniel, who's a man of God, says, Well, I don't care. I'm going to worship anyways, right? So he worships God anyways. Darius throws him into the den of lions, right? We've all heard that story. Uh, but here's the part that's cool about that story that you can kind of read over. When Darius, who was the king of the ancient world, okay, really powerful guy, super powerful guy. When Darius put Daniel into the tomb, it says that he sealed him in there. And when it says that it sealed him in there, it means that he put his signet ring Onto the stone that would have been put over the tomb. And what that means is, is that when you put your signet ring, when a king would put their signet ring, all of the power and all of the authority and all, uh, all of the, the, the majesty of that king was symbolized and represented in that seal. So if anybody wanted to come along and mess with that seal, guess who they're messing with? All of the fury of the king. So he put his stamp. He said, if anybody touches the seal, they mess with me. When Paul says in Ephesians that you are sealed, or when it says in our text that we are hidden in Christ, it is the present tense of salvation that means that no one can mess with you except for Christ himself, because you are sealed with the power of that seal. Look at Revelation uh, chapter, whatever, where is it? Uh, Revelation 1, oh, 5, 1 through 5, here we go. Revelation five, one through five, it says, then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll. There is one who has sealed you. There is one who can break that seal. When Paul says in Colossians that you are hidden in Christ, it means that you are sealed. It means that you are secure. And we should take hold of that assurance with both hands. J.C. Ryle, he wrote this about assurance. He said, Assurance, after all, is no more than a full grown faith, a masculine faith that grasps Christ's promise with both hands, a faith that argues, like the good centurion, if the Lord speak the word only, I am healed. Wherefore then should I doubt? What Paul is saying is saying, because you have been saved and because you are sealed, being saved right now, think bigger. Seek bigger. That's what he's saying. And then he moves into the future element of grace. Not only have we been saved, not only are we being saved, did you guys know that, that salvation is still to come for us? There is more to come for us. Take a look at the text one more time. Skip down to verse four. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul's saying, not only are you dead spiritually to the old things, not only are you resurrected to the spiritual life, not only are you sealed with him in Christ, but you will be raised in the last day when Christ comes again in glory to finalize his kingdom. I want to ask you guys something. Seems like a funny question to ask, but I'll explain it. What exactly do you think the primary reason for the cross was? What exactly do you think the primary reason of Jesus going to the cross was? I think sometimes we think so much about the fact that Jesus went to the cross to pay for our sins and to save us that we forget that that was a very small part of a very big gospel. God came in his son, Jesus Christ, as a man and drank the cup of wrath, not just so that you and I could be saved, but he came so that the kingdom of God could be realized through his ministry he came to establish and to pave the way for a eternal kingdom look at chapter uh, i'm sorry look at luke chapter 13 verse 18 look at what jesus says about the kingdom he said therefore jesus says what is the kingdom of god like it's a great question what shall i compare it and then he answers he says it's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying the kingdom of God, the fullness of God's glory, looks like right now, in this moment, a seed. Well, What is the seed? Jesus was the seed. He said, I'm the seed. And the seed must first go into the ground to be buried before it can begin to grow. So Jesus did that. He was crucified, put to death. This small, seemingly insignificant seed was put into the ground, buried, resurrected, and now through the church is being realized and growing into a kingdom. I want to tell you guys something. You were not just saved so that you could not go to hell. You were saved for kingdom work and a kingdom life under kingdom rule for the king of kings. That's what you were saved for. Don't sell yourself short. Salvation does not end at just, okay, now I don't go to hell. There is more kingdom work. Kingdom work. Listen to this. The incarnation, that's when Jesus became man, was the kingdom realized. The Christian life is to be the kingdom fertilized. And the second coming will be the kingdom finalized. Say that again. The incarnation, when Jesus came, was the kingdom realized. We started to see through Jesus what the kingdom was going to look like. He healed the sick because in the kingdom there is no sickness. He cast out demons because in the kingdom there is no demons. He will bind Satan forever. So through Jesus, we began to see little pockets of what the kingdom is going to look like. Through the church, we are the kingdom fertilized. It means that we are getting the world ready for the judgment to come and the final rule. And when Jesus comes again, the kingdom will be finalized, solidified. Amen? It's good news. This is what you've been saved into, church. Let me tell you what you've not been saved into. You have not been saved into just Christian culture. Okay, life as a Christian is more than just slapping the bumper sticker on, turning on K-Dove, and, and just being a Christian culture person. I have no problem with Christian culture, but I'm just going to tell you right now, Jesus is way cooler than that. He's way cooler than that. He's way more awesome than the the church that we can try to perform and make. He's way more cooler than the programs we can try to design. The kingdom is huge. It's powerful. It is eternal. And that's what we're living for. Christian culture is our best swing at just trying to make it work in the here and now when sin is present. But the kingdom, the kingdom is what we live for. Now, if that's true... How should that change the way that we live? It's the question we ask, right? Now, what does it mean to me? But if it's true, how does it change the way that I live? It means that not only were you not saved to Christian culture, but you are also not saved to a life that is all about you. You are not saved to a life that is all about you. Your life was purchased so that you could be working for the kingdom not to pay for your salvation, but because you are now a citizen of a kingdom that owns you, was that you have been purchased by that. This should affect us in that your life is more than living 60, 70, 80 years just trying to find ways to distract yourself from your own miserable existence. Your life was given to you to be invested. Jesus said time and time again, you have been given a life, invest it so that when I come back, you're not going to be ashamed that you buried your talent in the ground and said, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know what to do. I just buried it because I was, I was scared. What if you judge me? I'm just going to sit in church and, and just kind of be here and be present. No, he said, invest it for the kingdom because that's who you are now. That's your identity. What this affects is, is f- affects how you invest your life. Only a fool would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy shares in a company and then go spend his time blessing another company. You invest where you get a return. And God says, your kingdom is your company. That's where you invest. That's where you spend. That's where you work towards. This is the full view of salvation that Paul wants us to live in light of. It's bigger. It's more robust than we paint it as in the church oftentimes. And it's more full than we think it is in our default setting. What Paul is offering here is he's not just merely offering some biblical application. He's not just offering some, uh, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. He's not just offering some uh, practical application. He's not just offering some biblical information. What he is offering is gospel transformation, not just a couple things that, oh, that's helpful. I can put that in my toolbox to help me be more patient and more kind. And, oh, thank you. That's really good. That's, no, Paul's saying, no, this isn't just put a tool in your toolbox. This is everything changes for you. You are a new creation. You are being saved. You will be saved to an eternal kingdom. That should affect us. It should change us. And what he's saying in this text is live in light of that. Let it move you. Let it change you. Let the momentum of that Mack truck that is the gospel that just ran you over move you somewhere. If it doesn't move you, it's not the gospel. If you can remove Jesus from a truth, then it may be a truth still, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is when only Jesus can cause that to be true. Only Jesus can cause the dead heart to come to life. Only Jesus can cause the spirit to completely rework the way that you think and live. That's the gospel reality he wants us to live in light of. And what he's saying is, he's saying, let your life reflect a robust view of salvation. God is big. Amen? John Piper says, wimpy worldviews make wimpy Christians. We have to know how big of salvation God has done for us because when we suffer, and we will suffer, We want to suffer well in a way that our nurses and our doctors and our families say, What is he on? (laughs) What drug did you give him? (laughs) No, I just serve a big king, a big kingdom. God wants to do big things. You might write this down The size of your mission reflects the size of your message, reflects the size of your maker. The size of your mission reflects the size of your message reflects the size of your maker. What that means is simply this. is If you want to know how big of a kingdom message you have believed, take a look at your missional life. And I don't just mean do you send money to Uganda, $40 a month. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about is your life lived on mission. In the level that it has lived on mission will reflect the level that you actually believe this truth. Like, can you imagine what our lives would look like if we actually believed that Christ was coming to judge the whole earth and set you and I up in positions of authority to rule an eternal kingdom forever? Can you imagine how different that would look? Can you imagine how different my life would look? And it's not to heap condemnation on you. It's just to say, man, there's so much more we could be doing. There's So much more. The size of your mission reflects the size of your message, reflects ultimately the size of your maker. If we want people to see a big God through our salvation message, they need to see a big mission. Because we know our God is capable of big things. I want to leave that with you guys. Think about that. But again, the question is, how do we get there? Okay, Sam, this is all great, inspiring, whatever. How do I get there? Because right now, I just don't feel like God is big. I don't feel like I have a big mission. I don't feel like I have a lot of faith right now to offer. Well, first of all, you don't, okay? But it just takes a mustard seed, right? But Here's the reality. Here's what I want to leave you with. The level that you experience a big God will be the level that you experience a big mission. You have to be willing to see God He's not any less glorious now than he will be if you see him later. How much of him do you want to see? How much of this reality do you want to affect you and change you? In Isaiah chapter 6, there's a story where Isaiah, the prophet, who, by the way, uh, was an incredible prophet, spoke as if time did not exist. He portrayed God in all of these different uh, areas of life and time. He talked about Jesus being crucified like like it happened already. And the reason why is because when Isaiah was younger, before his ministry started, he was caught up into a vision. And and don't think vision like it was a daydream. Don't think vision like it wasn't real, like it was a dream. He got caught up into a reality. But it was a future reality. He, He was able for a moment to see what God's kingdom would look like. Not now in the church, not in the millennium, but in the final point. The point when Jesus and his glory is fully allowed on the earth. And so Isaiah gets carried up and he sees it. And there's Jesus on the throne in the temple. And it says the drain of his robe fills the temple. And there's angels there worshiping and bowing down. And the temple is filled with his glory. And that doesn't mean that he had, you know, lots of cloth filling the, the, the temple. It means that his glory was literally thick in this place. It was so obvious that God's glory was touching every point in that temple. So he's seeing this final, this is what it's going to be like. But what I love about that story is Isaiah's response to that. First, his response is, I should not be here. I am not worthy. You ever know? I challenge you this time, open the Bible, read all the times when men or women stood before the glory of God. And what their response always is, is I am not worthy to be here. I should not be here because I am still sinful. So God comes down, an angel comes and and touches his mouth with a coal to purify him so that he can go do this prophetic work. And then God brings up this question, who will go? Who will go to the nations and proclaim what you just saw here? Who will tell them? And what I love about that story is that there is no hesitation in Isaiah. He doesn't say, you know what, maybe I'll go think about it, maybe I'll go pray about it, talk to my wife, you know, count the cost. No, he doesn't do that. He just immediately says, send me. I'll go. I will go. Why can he say that? He can say that because he saw the reality of God's glory in the eternal. He saw it. And he was changed by it. And he had to go tell everybody. Mission is birth out of seeing God, experiencing God. We're scared of that word experience, aren't we? In the more conservative movements of church. It's not about experience. It's about doctrine. Yeah, doctrine's important. You have to experience God to grow. It cannot be just knowledge. Is a God that needs you to experience Him. You need to worship Him. You need to press into Him in moments like we had earlier when we were worshiping. Worthy is the Lamb. Meet Him. That's what will change you. That's what will transform you, is meeting the real God. So I have an example of this in closing. Um, This is a thing. Okay, profound. Write that down. Uh, This is a thing. It's the kind of thing that you would find sweeping your floor uh, in the garage. You know, you're sweeping up, and there's all these things. How did these even get here, you know? Um, what, what in the world did this fall off of? Just throw it away, whatever. It's the thing that your wife, you know, finds, um, uh, you know, in your, in your pants. Uh, and, and she's like, what is that, you know, Chuck? Uh, I'm sorry if there's any men that do the laundry. That's not a sexist thing. My wife washes my pants. Thank you. That's so good. Okay, anyways. He was like, how dare you say only women wash pants? Okay. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know. Um, anyways, this is a thing. This is the thing that you find, and, and it seems insignificant, seems like nothing, and it's just, you end up throwing it out, it's not really important, whatever. Now, what if I told you, now let's put the, the picture up here. This is not a prosperity gospel teaching. No, you will not get that if you live a life of faith, okay? <laughs> if you tied today, you could have this Within the next few days. No. Um, what if I told you that this piece, as insignificant as it seems, is actually crucial to that car driving or even starting? That without this piece, that's just basically a lump. A lump of metal and rubber and seatbelts. Okay? That, that, what if I told you that? Then all of a sudden, this little piece that seems so insignificant takes on a whole lot more value, doesn't it? Because now you know what it's for. Now you know what's attached to it. Now you know the importance of it. You know that it was created for a reason. You know what this does? This goes over the post on a a battery. The battery has two posts. This connects to the post. You tighten it down, and then it allows your car to start, which is important. Okay? It's important. Now, I want to tell you guys, if you do not understand the kingdom of God in a fuller scope— you cannot possibly hope to value your life in the way that you, I know, are seeking to. You cannot possibly hope know how to live. You cannot ho- possibly get up in the morning with, with any kind of real purpose because you think you're just an insignificant thing that is swept up on the floor and God is probably sick of you and he's probably tired of dealing with you It'd be just better if I wasn't part of all this. No. He created you for a purpose. Now, you're not the car. Okay, you're, don't get me, you're not a Corvette, okay? Jesus is the Corvette, everybody got that? Okay, the church, Corvette, whatever. But you are a small part, but you are important to that. And the more you see the full picture, the more you will value your ministry and your mission in life. Now I want to ask you guys just a few questions uh, that hopefully are going to let you do some soul work this morning. Because I don't want to just say, hey, here's some truth, now go have lunch. Okay, I want you to think about this. Think about this. Wrestle with this. You might even write them down. Take them home. Say, God, is there any, anywhere in me that I'm missing this? And the first question is really simple. It's how big is your scope? How big is your scope? And, and maybe a quantifying question for that is how easily shaken are you over temporal things? How quick are you to freak out when someone cuts you off in traffic? How quick are you to flip out on your kids when they don't do exactly what you want in the moment? I'm using examples from my own life. (laughs) Uh, You know, seriously, I mean, how, how little of a thing does it take to completely shake your world? What is your red balloon? What is it? What is it that completely rocks you because your vision is so small? Think bigger. The second question is, how much do you fear God? And we don't like fear God in the West, right? We like big teddy bear God. Like, Come here, Jesus. You know, give me a, give me a big hug. Like that, that is, I don't know what God that is, but that is not the God of the Bible. The Bible talks about fearing God for a reason because God is uncontrollable. He is furious. He's furiously in love with you. He's also furiously in love with his own glory. He's also furiously holy He's eternally wrathful, right? There's no end to his holiness and what he will do to establish his holiness and his righteousness. He's uncontrollable. There's a reason that the disciples, when they were on the boat crossing the Galilee and this big storm comes up and they all think they're going to die. And they're like, Jesus, why are you sleeping in the boat? Get up, help us. What's going on? Jesus rises up. He looks at the waves, completely calm, and he says, be calm. And just like on the first day of the world, creation obeys him calm and the fear in that moment in the disciple's heart goes from being from the storm to being for him who is this man that the wind and the waves obey him what are we dealing with jesus is an uncontrollable force god is an uncontrollable force and we ought to in light of his love Stare at him in awe and a little bit of fear. God is big. He's big. And I will tell you, if that's not the view you have of God, you're not looking. You're just reading warm, fuzzy things. The Bible portrays a God of the universe that is huge and terrifying. I'm so glad he loves me. (laughs) Question number three, how big... Is your kingdom view? How big is your kingdom view? And here's a, a quantifying question for that: What do you think a big mission is? When I say big mission, does your mind immediately go to m- like mission field, sell everything I have, go, move to you know wherever? And I mean, and now that may be what God called you to, but that's not a big vi- that's not a big view of vision of, of mission of ki- well wow, I'm all over the place. That's not a big view of kingdom. A big view of kingdom is. Hey, changing this diaper right now, if done for the glory of God, is mission work. Hey, taking a minute to love on that person, taking a minute to share the gospel, taking a minute to to be patient with my kids and, and even just tell them about the Lord, that's mission work, that's kingdom work. If you think only being on the mission field or only being a pastor or only doing huge things is big kingdom work, then you don't understand the kingdom. It's the small things done for the big god that's what makes a difference what is the gospel to you what is it is it only salvation for you or does it include kingdom work and kingdom fulfillment think about that when you think gospel what do you think and lastly and this this one is super convicting for me do you place yourself in positions to see god as powerful do you put yourself in a place where you will see god's power And I I mean that with two prongs. The first prong is theologically. Do you put yourself in a position where you are forced to view God's glory through who he revealed himself to be in here and then have to react to it? Or are you content with who you think God is? Are you ready to really experience who he is and who he said he is in here? Go find him. Go find him. And secondly, do you put yourself in a position to see God as powerful missionally? In other words, do you ever put yourself into a position where you're like, man, if God doesn't show up right now, I'm hosed. I can't do this without him. My tendency is to always do things that are maybe a little bit outside of my comfort zone, but I know I can pull them off. I know I can come up here and preach. I've been doing it for a while. But what I know I can't do is come up here and bring life into you guys. Only the gospel can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can come do that. Put yourself in positions where, God, if you don't show up, this is going to be totally lame. You know what one position of that is like? Your kids. You can't save your kids. You can't do it. You can be controlling type A helicopter mom, helicopter dad their whole life, and they will hate you, and they will run away from you. And it doesn't matter what you, you only God can save your kids. Put yourself in the vulnerability of that truth. God, is you or nothing. Only God can deliver your marriage to the end. Without God, it ends. (laughs) This is reality. Look at the statistics. Only God can allow two sinful humans to live together for the rest of their life. Only God can save your neighbor. Only God can keep this church from, at some point, falling off the rails. A million reasons why this church could fall off the rails. Only God can keep it together. Only God. Put yourself in positions where you say, Lord, it's you or nothing. It's either you or nothing. This is the size of kingdom think and kingdom work that we need to be living in. Amen? Let's all stand. I want to read our text to you one more time because I want you to go feeling like you own this passage now. Feeling like Colossians... 3, 1 through 4 means something to you, okay? So I'm just going to read it one more time. Would you guys even bow your heads as I read it over you one more time? If then, Paul says, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Father, we believe that. We believe it, God. Help our unbelief. Lord, if we truly could grasp the reality and the weight of this concept you've given us through the word, it would absolutely transform what we do. We don't want to waste our lives. And God, we live in a country that has made it so easy for us to do that just to lull us to sleep with comfort, lulled us to sleep with the next thing that might make us happy. God, bring kingdom perspective so that we can change, so that we can be useful to you. We want to be tools in your hands. Father, wash over us with grace and love and truth. We pray. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. If anybody is looking for prayer, the prayer room is going to be open afterwards. Elders will be in there um, ready to pray for you guys. Um, also, I'm just going to plug something really quick. If you guys are interested in learning about the book of Jeremiah, this Wednesday we're going to have a panel discussion that's going to be really cool with some really heavy hitters up there that you're going to want to come here. Um, so this Wednesday, 6.30 at the Hub, come check it out. God bless you guys. Don't forget Pastor's Coffee on the way out if you're interested. Thanks.